Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel. And he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain, I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For Sean 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell. I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face. I mean, just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face. Probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem. And she would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mon. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight is we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible and lays on the pulpit, it's a reminder. He used to be laying down lines of cocaine. He used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle. He used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife. Praise the Lord. God created him and ordained him to walk in good works. It's a reminder, Christian. I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. For giving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two, by surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose. 
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Jesus comes. Amen. <laughs> God has a great work for us to do. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to talk about that tonight, both aspects. The multiplication, that's the work. Uh, the murmuring, that's when we want to rest instead of work. Uh, but the multiplication and murmuring in the church here uh, this evening. And we'll look together here in Acts. Uh, and we'll look at chapter 6. We're going to look at the first seven verses. As you're turning there and getting ready tonight, let me remind you and remind you about our new adult Sunday school uh, starting this Sunday, a series on prayer. Let me encourage you to be here. 
And would you do me a favor? Would you invite somebody, somebody that isn't normally at Sunday school, maybe somebody who comes once in a while to Sunday school and isn't always there. Would you invite somebody to be here uh, this Sunday for our uh, beginning of our lessons on prayer? Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Lord, I believe we have a very needful message tonight. A very needful passage for us to focus upon. Lord, a reminder, Lord, that you want us to multiply. A reminder that your goal for us is not to stay the same. Not to be us four and no more. Lord, your goal for us is to be sharing our faith. But Lord, also a very needful reminder that along with that growth comes some growing pains. Lord, as we look together here, would you teach us, help us to see what happened here in the church in Jerusalem, help us to see your pattern, your plan, and your purpose. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we see the great blessing that came by this church seeking to honor you in every aspect. Lord, I do pray tonight that you would help us to honor you, help us to obey you, help us to keep your purpose, our purpose. Lord, would you help me tonight? Help me to teach you right your truth. Lord, would you be glorified? In your precious name we pray. Amen. The words in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 suggest that theme you see on the title slide tonight, that multiplication and murmuring in the church. The Lord Jesus is and was, he still is today, on the throne. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever question who's in control. Don't ever wonder, is God still on the throne? He is. Uh, he is. Uh, he's not abdicating that throne. By the way, I don't make him uh, the king. I don't make him the Lord. He is the king. He is the Lord. Well, I can yield to him, but he is on the throne. And he is alive and well. But today, in our world, on our earth today, his agent is working. So, Pastor, who is that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, Christian, lives inside of me and inside of you, inside of every believer. And since 
We read earlier in Acts, the Holy Spirit came the very moment someone comes to Christ and believes and receives the gospel, the Holy Spirit indwells them and lives in them, and God's purpose for his spirit in you and in me is multiplication of the gospel. We see that was happening here in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 16, Mark 16. Uh, we could look back in Acts 2. Turn there quickly, if you will. Acts 2, verses 4 through 7. Just back a few pages. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in their own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Can I tell you that it was not Peter? Let's get this out of the way tonight. Let's make sure we, we're on the same page and understand Scripture. It was not Peter who was responsible for the great revival in Jerusalem. It was not James and John. And by the way, it was not Paul responsible for the great mission work that was done. As we look at the book of Acts, the number one, the, the, the player, the person that did all the work is the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit. By the way, he is still working today. And his goal today is still that we allow him to use us to be a part of this multiplication. There were many new believers. We, we, we learned this from Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. We've been seeing week by week by week that many people were coming to Christ. New believers. So what accounted for that exponential church growth? The Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. Now, but we say, oh, but, but there were people that, I mean, there was Paul and Peter, not at this time, but there was Peter and James and John and the other disciples and all these. Uh, we see these men we read about in chapter 6, these devout men, these spiritual men. But hold on a minute. They were men who were yielded to the Holy Ghost, to the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. It was God working through believers. Believers just like you. Just like me. It was God doing his work. Adam and Eve, when God created them, God gave them a command. Go forth and multiply. Multiply. God's purpose for man was that man flourish. That man multiply. So, Pastor, why would God tell Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply? I believe there are many reasons, and we won't go into it tonight, but I believe the key foundational reason is because it was a picture of the gospel that God wanted to multiply in the earth. And we see here that the gospel was being multiplied. It was multiplied. Genesis 1.22, God said to them, go forth and multiply. Turn to hold your place here in Acts and turn to Matthew 28. The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28 and verse 19. 
Just as God said to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, God has given you and I, and God had given these believers in the book of Acts the same command. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Where were they to go? All nations. All nations. In other words, it was to multiply, the gospel was to multiply everywhere. So as we think about that, uh, as we think about God's purpose and God's plan for us in multiplying, look back in chapter 6, if you will. In chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we see here that there was multiplication, but that multiplication came with some other things. It came with, it came with some problems. So note seven lessons here quickly. Seven lessons or seven thoughts from this passage regarding multiplying and murmuring. Number one, God's plan for his work is multiplication. I've already touched on it. I've already hit, set the foundation tonight, but I want you to know that that is God's plan. It's multiplication. I got a dog, a beagle dog, when I was 16. Not long after I got that beagle dog, I found out somebody had another beagle, and I got another beagle dog. And that one beagle dog plus another beagle dog ended up equaling about eight beagles. They multiplied. God wants us to multiply. God's plan for his work is multiplication. It's God's purpose. Verse 7, the Bible says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. And I like this word, greatly. There are those today that don't believe that God can work. There are those today that doubt the power of God's Spirit. There are those today that if they hear of more than one person coming to Christ, oh, that's not possible because they don't believe the Bible. The fact is God's Holy Spirit has the same power today. Uh, there is no difference. Now, I understand we're in the last days. I believe that. But God wants his word to multiply, to multiply. We find out that from Pentecost onward that it just kept growing exponentially. I'm going to tell a, a story tonight uh, on Rebecca. Years ago, Carrie used to brush Rebecca's hair when she was little. And my wife would yank the knots out of her hair. How many of you moms ever remember having to do that, to brush your daughter's hair and your, I mean, yanking knots. And Rebecca would scream and yell, yell and wail and uh, to the point where she finally said to Carrie one day, I, I, I'll brush my own hair. I'll, I'll, I'll brush it out myself. You know why she told Carrie that? Because she had a knot in her hair. I don't know how long that knot was there, but I know that Rebecca spent a long time hiding the fact she had a knot in her hair. And it got worse and worse and worse, and it got so, so bad. Some of you might remember years ago uh, when we found it, had to chop her hair off. 
her hair was not quite as short as mine, but it was pretty short. <laughs> because the only way to get it out was to just chop it off. Because it got worse and worse and worse and worse. That was last, was it last year? I think, no, it was a long time ago. But that knot just got bigger and bigger. Christian, the gospel is to be expanding. God's work is to be growing. His plan is multiplication. This whole idea of, you know, God, God just wants a few of us, and, and he wants, you know, just those that really, really love him, that's the only ones he cares about. I mean, yeah, that, that guy's not spiritual enough. He, God doesn't love him as much as he loves me. Now, you say, Pastor, that's ridiculous. I agree. But I'm going to tell you right now, about 50% of the people that I meet that claim to be Christians, that's their attitude. That, oh, no, I, I'm more spiritual than that person. God, I, We're all special. I, I'm more special to God. God loves me more because I, I do more things or I, I measure up better than that person. And God's really just concerned about we few. Christian, if that's your attitude, you need to get over yourself. You need to go wash some feet. You need to go pick up some hurting people. You need to learn to love like Jesus loves. By the way, his love is not based on what we do for him. His love is based on his decision to love us. And God said, I, I don't want just a few people. I want everybody. The Bible says, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking that if anybody comes to him, not just, oh, no, I don't like you. I don't want you to come to my door. How many of you have ever heard a knock at your door? And you look out and go, I don't know those people. I'm not answering the door. You ever do that? I have. Or I'll yell, I'm not interested. I'll, I'll see their material, their clipboard. You come to my door with a clipboard, I'll either tell you to go away or I'll punch you in the nose. I don't, don't come to my house with a clipboard. Leave me. I, I'm too busy to deal with stupidity. I, I don't want what you have. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, now, we act that way, so we think God's going to act that way. But the Bible says he stands to the door knock, wanting everybody to come to him. Every person from every culture, every kindred, every tongue. God's plan is multiplication. Can I tell you that the gospel here in the book of Acts was following that pattern? Following that pattern. I mentioned the words to Adam, multiply. The words to us in the book of Matthew, go to all the world. Number two, I said God's plan for his work is multiplication. Number two, multiplication brings dangers. It brings dangers. From verse 1, we find out that as the church grew in Acts chapter 6, that there was murmuring, there was disagreement, there was problem. These Greek-speaking Jews complained that the Jerusalem Jews, so funny to me, all the way back in the book of Acts, same problems we have today, same same flesh issues. The flavor really hasn't changed much. The Greek-speaking Jews complained that the Jerusalem Jews were being favored. Well, that you're taking care of this group of people. You're not taking care of us because, you know, we're, we're not like you. And by the way, it very well could have been true. The, the Bible doesn't seem to tell us either way. It may have been it was a legitimate issue. It may have been they felt that was true. Either way, God dealt with it. 
But they say, hey, we're not being taken care of. I tend to believe that that was the case. I tend to believe that they were being mistreated or they were not being treated evenly as they should have been. The fault, however, was not in neglect. The neglect was fixed. It was the fault was in the murmuring. That murmuring, that complaining. By the way, the same murmuring and complaining that started back in the wilderness. <laughs> man, I wish we were back in Egypt. When Moses gives us this nasty stuff, man, we had leeks and onions back in. Man, remember back there in Egypt how good it was? Yeah, you were being beaten. But they murmured and they complained. We'll find something to complain about. We'll find some way. How many of you were cold today? The wind made you feel cold. Oh, so cold. Did you know it's not minus 30? I'm like, praise God, it's nice outside. I'm happy. Uh, but we complain. And then when it's really cold, we'll complain it's cold. Then when it's hot, we're going to complain it's hot. And we're wired that. Our flesh just wants something to complain about. We want something to be miserable about. Now, what was the root of that? When God works... And when the work of God multiplies their dangers, the devil sees to it. Uh, it is partially from an attack. The devil's plan to spoil, to disrupt, to upset. But it's not just the devil. How many of you remember uh, that sketch from, I believe it was the 70s, the devil made me do it? It's not all the devil's fault. No, we, we, we want to we blame the devil. Oh, man, it's all the devil's fault. That's what's going on. Can I tell you, sometimes it's just immature Christians. Those of you that are parents, do you remember bringing that baby home the first night? Do you remember going to bed? You were tired. You've probably been in the hospital for a day or two. Long, several days. You poor mothers, you, you went through nine months of carrying this child and going through labor, and you're, you're done, you're tired, you're worn out, you lay the baby down, you get the baby to sleep, and your head goes on your pillow, and just as you're almost asleep, <laughs> and you wake up, you're like, You smother the child. No, you, you want, like we say, be, you know why they're not quiet? You know why they cry? Because they're babies. That's what babies do. Hey, Christian, can I warn you as our church grows? And it is growing. It ought to grow. Sometimes baby Christians cry. It, it's, it's immaturity. Some of this murmuring, yes, yeah, sure, the devil was maybe trying to cause some division, but I believe a lot of it was there's a lot of baby Christians. I mean, they're brand new Christians. Those of you that came uh, to Christ out of some uh, out of religion or came out of a, a background with no understanding of the Word of God at all, man, you know it was it was tough navigating. Brand new believer, brand new Christian. We see here these these widows were being taken care of. There was murmuring. There was arguing. There was some attention that needed to be given. 
You moms, you know that when that baby cried, what you had to do. You said to your husband, go deal with the baby. No, you, you probably went because he, he didn't hear the baby. How many of you, your husband didn't wake up? That was me. Brother Bonnie, praise God. God made us, God made us the right way, right? And baby screams. I wake up in the morning. Carrie's like, oh, Rebecca was up 20 times last night. I never heard her. I never one time. I slept. When I go to sleep, the world ends. It starts back up. That's why I'm going to live to be about 150 because I'm not even sure I'm really alive when I'm sleeping. Uh, I only live part of the day. But you had to go deal with it. Now, it may not have been convenient. It may not have been what you wanted to do. But it's what you needed to do. You may have had other children that weren't awake and crying. But you had to go deal with the one that was. Understand, there are those dangers of multiplication, but they're necessary. Just as those kind of problems I mentioned are necessary as a family grows. And we see that here in our text. Number three tonight, and I, and I love this, we see in verse two, God's leaders must fearlessly guard his work. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, verse 2, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. I love the story in the Old Testament of one of David's mighty men whose job it was to guard the pea field. I, I, I think that's hilarious. I mean, he's in the pea field, the middle of the pea patch. Armies are coming, and he's fighting all these guys around him that are coming in because he is going to guard a pea field. Now, that's ridiculous to us. We say, man, you guys enjoy the pea field. I, I'm going to go to get something else. I don't want to fight. Why was he one of David's mighty men? Because David had given him the job. David said to that man, this is your job. Your job is not to lead an army. Your job is not to follow me or support me. Your job to this particular mighty man is to guard that pea field. So he guarded what he was supposed to guard. We see here that God's leaders need to fearlessly, as he guarded that pea field, we need to guard the work of God. Why? Because the work of God's important. The work of God was not supposed to stop while these problems were dealt with. That's why whenever God used Nehemiah to help build back the walls of Jerusalem, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Because the work was not going to stop. While they're working, if the enemy came, they'd use a sword for a bit and go back to building. Nehemiah said, I'm doing a great work. I, I, I'm not going to come down there, send Ballot and Tobiah, and, and talk to you. I'm too busy for that. I've got a work that's bigger than you and greater than you, and I'm not going to stop the work. Here in the church in Jerusalem, there was a great work. It was growing. It was multiplying. And we see the leaders here understood the importance of guarding, of guarding the work of God for the glory of God. We see the apostles here. They had a meeting. To say, we got to deal with this. I can't. Peter said, I, we can't go 
and take care of these Grecian widows. Like we can't do it. Like we, we have too much to do. We, we've got we've to find a plan to meet the needs of these baby Christians, these new Christians. We've got to find the means and a way to, to help bridge this gap that's happening, this friction, this murmuring. But it, we can't do it. They guarded the work of God. They've been entrusted with the position of leadership. They made wise decisions, spiritual decisions. Now with that said, number four, as we think about that a bit more, God's workers must stay at their God-appointed task. How many of you know the name Earl Jessup? If you don't, may I educate you just for a moment? Brother Jessup was a dear friend of mine. A dear friend. Brother Jessup would have jumped in front of a bus for me. He was that kind of fella. I loved Brother Jessup. He was a dear, dear friend. I miss him. Brother Jessup, years ago, he had had some, some health issues. He had an accident. He broke his collarbone, now come to think of it. And he had planned on coming out and uh, being with us for in the fall. And I told him the year before, I said, I said, Brother Jessup, I said, won't you come out and let's go hunting together. Let's, we'd never done anything other. We'd ministered together. He preached for us. We'd supported him in the ministry of Baptist church planting. And, and I said, just come out. Let's spend some time together. So in process of time, things were getting close, and he stepped off a curb, if I remember correctly, and broke his collarbone, and he was a mess. He called me up. He said, Brother Rice, he said, I, we were going to bow hunt. We were going to uh, hunt deer with a bow, and he said, I can't pull a bow. He said, I wish I could come. I said, well, man, let's just reschedule a little bit. I said, and come, and, and we'll go rifle hunting for deer. So he did. He came. His wife called me when he got here. She read me the riot act. She said, you, I told him I don't want him there. You better take care of him. Don't you let him get hurt. I sent a picture to his wife that week. He was sitting in a reclining chair out in the bush. He had a, a cup of coffee in one hand, a thermos of coffee in the other. I had a blanket wrapped around him. Uh, I took care of him. I said, don't worry. He's okay. But that week, we had one of our men in the church some of you know Brother Mark Hesketh was here. and Brother Mark went out with us, and I, I had Brother Mark and myself and Brother Jessup. And I said to Brother Earl, I said, hey, I said, I, I know where there's a big deer. And I wanted him to kill a big buck. He was, Brother Jessup, about three years later, would go to heaven. And his health was failing a bit. And I said, I know where there's a really big buck. I said, I want you to get it. And I had Brother Mark. I said, Mark, I want you to take... Brother Jessup, and I told Mark where to go, and I gave him a blind to set up a blind and sit down and wait for this big deer. And so we split up. They went this way exactly where I told them to go. I went this way. I climbed up in a tree. And as I was up in the tree that morning, I saw the buck, and I mean big buck, as big as the one that you and I saw this year. It jumped the fence right in front of me. I knew where it was going to go. I could have killed it. And I thought, no, that's, that's Brother Jessup's buck. I'm not touching that buck. That thing's, it's sanctified unto the Lord. Like, I can't kill that deer. That's his deer. 
And I watched as it jumped across the fence, and I saw it going down. And I went exactly where I knew it was going to go, followed the trail. I, I knew where it was going. I prayed about it. Like, it literally went exactly where it was supposed to go. When it disappeared, I, about 10 minutes after it disappeared, I thought, okay. It spent about the right amount of time, and I was waiting. I was expecting to hear, <coughs> that never happened. Never happened. A couple hours later, uh, another buck walked underneath my tree, and I shot the deer. And about 30 minutes after I shot the deer, I see Mark Hesketh and Brother Jessup, and they're coming through the bush, coming to me, and as they get down at the bottom of the tree and they see my deer, I looked at them and I said, what happened? And I looked at Brother Jessup and I said, I know that deer walked right past you guys. I said, why didn't you shoot it? And I watched Brother Jessup look at Mark Hesketh. And Brother Mark put his hand on his head. And he looked up at me and said, preacher, I didn't think that was a good place. So I went somewhere else. <laughs> and I said, you, you what? <laughs> you went somewhere else? I said, the deer went right where I told you to go. But he wasn't in the right place. As far as I know, Brother Jessup, before he went to heaven, never killed a deer that big. In heaven, he's probably killing them now. But because he wasn't in the right place. They didn't stay where they're supposed to stay. Christian, I believe this as much as I believe there's a heaven, as much as I believe that God loves me. I believe that God has a purpose for you and God has a purpose for me. And we need to be in our place. We need to stay in our place. We oftentimes, though, notice verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word Here's our problem, and, and I say our, but ours because I, I'm raising my hand saying our problem. Our problem is, the danger is, oftentimes not laziness in ministry. Oftentimes it's overcrowding with activity that takes us out of our place, that moves us from that place that God has us. Oh, this is important, or that's important, and there are many important things, but God has a purpose for us. And we see here that God's workers, we need to stay at our God-appointed task. I had a pastor 19 years ago say to me in front of about 100, 100 Christian workers, Brother Rice, what would you say if I told you that I thought you should go and he mentioned he wanted me to go lead a ministry somewhere? And I looked at him and I said, Sir, I said, what would you say if I told you you should leave your church right now and you shouldn't pastor anymore? And he was upset. But I wanted him to get the picture and understand. I told him, I said, sir, I said, just as much as you know you're supposed to pastor where you are. I said, I know where God wants me. I said, I know very plainly where that is, and nothing's going to move me from that direction. We need to resolve that we are going to be where God wants us. That's going to mean we can't do everything. And that, that's tough for us. It's tough for me. We can't do everything. We can't have too many irons in the fire. We, 
The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul said this, one thing I do. He didn't say these 20,000 things I do. Now, we want to do the 20,000 things, but there's one thing or several things that we should do. We need to realize it's possible. It is dangerously possible. Let me make a statement. Don't miss this. It is dangerously possible to be doing good work, which is not God's work, because God hasn't called you to do it. It's possible to be doing good work that is not God's work, because God hasn't called you to do it. These men God would call to the, the task, it was for them. Peter could have done it. Oh, he couldn't have. Oh, James could have. No, James couldn't do it. That wasn't what James was called to. Christian, you need to realize God has a task for you. There's, there are many things you can do that I cannot do. There are things that you can do tonight that Colton can't do. We all have a task that we have to fulfill if we are all to do the work that God has for us. Number five. Number five tonight, care. And we learn this from this passage, care must be taken in appointing leaders. Look at verse three and verse five. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Verse number five. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. And goes on to list these that they were chosen. What was God's standard? Here's what we think. <laughs> Go choose you out somebody that has a pulse. Make sure someone's all, okay, you're alive, yeah, you'll do. Now, I think there are many things in the work of God that anybody can do. I believe anybody and everybody ought to be sharing the gospel. Anybody can hand out a gospel tract. Anybody. Anybody. But I also believe, as we see here, this particular work, God had a standard of what was needed. I went to apply for a job at a trucking company years ago. And I went there expecting I was going to move freight. When I walked through the door, the office manager looked at me and said, Are you here to apply for the office position? Brother Bonnie, in Chicago, it gets cold like in Edmonton. You you work outside. You know what it is to you know be cold and bundled up. And did you know that it's warm in an office? And I thought, yes, ma'am, I'm here for the office position. <laughs> I thought this is a great idea. And I thought, man, this is awesome. I, I came for a job. Yeah, I'll work in the office. I don't care. I'll do whatever. And then she said words I did not want to hear. Okay, I'm going to have you go in this room and, and I'm going to have you take a typing test. Oh no. I actually have to do office work. And they got a, there was a standard. I had to type so many words a minute. Praise God for the, we had a, it was a computer. Praise God for that. Number one, it wasn't a typewriter. I learned to type on an electric typewriter. But it wasn't a typewriter. This was 1995. It was on a computer. And praise God for the backspace button. Hallelujah. And I, <laughs> I typed ridiculous words per minute. I think God gave me a special anointing of the Holy Spirit to type super fast that day. But I met the standard. 
Had I been like some of you are with typing, how many of you are two-finger typers? Where's my two-finger typers? Right there. Daryl. The hunt and peck method, right? I can type one word a minute. <laughs> I mean, if I typed like that, they wouldn't have hired me. Why? They had a standard. We understand that in the business world. I mean, we get it. We understand that. God has a standard. Great care must be taken to follow God's standard. What was God's standard here? God told him to seek out those that were, notice in verse 3, honest, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. God's standards are not to be lowered. There was going to be seven men. I believe God gave seven men here as a picture. Not that these were perfect men but that they perfectly filled God's requirement. Seven, the number of perfection in the Bible. These seven men were to be selected men. Selected men. They were to be chosen, not over prominence. Not like, okay, uh, let's pick out some important people. That's not what the Bible said to happen. It did not say that they were to pick out popular people. It wasn't, hey, let's have a popularity contest. Let's find out who everybody likes. That wasn't God's standard. It wasn't over, about seniority. It wasn't, hey, let's find out who's been here the longest. It wasn't even their ability. There was no test given. It was that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. That they be spiritual men. That they be filled with faith. Why was God concerned about that? Why was it a concern that they be filled with the Holy Spirit, that they be spiritual? Because God didn't need their ability. God needed their availability. And if they were available to God, God could do anything with them. Christian, that's still true today. If we're available to God, if we're spiritual, God can do anything with us. That's God's pattern. Christian, I would hope that we would desire, if God had a work to do, we'd desire, God, I, I hope that I'm, I meet the standard. I hope that, God, if you wanted to use me, I hope that I'm usable. You ever go to grab a pencil and you start to write with it and realize the lead's missing? With no, God. And most of the time, you don't have time to find a pencil sharpener. Now, back in the, back in the old days, we had pencil sharpeners everywhere. Nowadays, try to find a pencil sharpener in, in our culture in 2023. Just throw the pencil away and find another one. <laughs> it's easier. It's just not usable. We ought to desire to be usable. Number six, turn to Romans 12 with me. Romans 12. I'm going to close with this thought tonight. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Number six tonight, here we see Romans 12 verse 10 in action. If we go back in the book of Acts chapter 6, we find that God chose these men 
And these men showed literally brotherly kindness and love. They ministered to the needs of hurting people. They helped. They helped. By the way, if you study it out, you'll find out that every one of the men that God chose were Greek-speaking Jews. In other words, the group that said, we're not being taken care of, we're not having our needs met. God didn't lead someone from that other group. Okay, here you go. No, he led from the group that had the problem. Hey, let's, let's meet the need. Many of you know this to be true. If you come to me and say, Pastor, I've got a great idea. Oftentimes I'll say, I like it. You're in charge of it. Uh, now, now, still bring me good ideas. But I oftentimes, someone says, man, I've got this idea. I really like it. I'll say, yeah, that's great. Go ahead. Go ahead and lead it. Go ahead and do it. That's what happened here. We see these Greek-speaking Jews that went to meet the needs of the Greek-speaking Jews, the problem that was being needed to be dealt with. We have the grace of God in action here. They chose these men in a particular way. And God was honored. And they loved the people. You know what would have been easy to do? It would have been easy for one of the preachers, one of the apostles, on Sunday morning when they gathered together. <laughs> Imagine that, thousands of people. To get up and say, you bunch of deadbeat, good-for-nothing, sinful, carnal people complaining. Why don't you just get right with God? That would have been easy. And maybe there were some of them that needed to hear that. And maybe that was preached. I don't know. But there were some people that just needed to be loved. Like that little baby that screamed and kept you awake half the night. Just needed mommy to come and hug it and love it and care for it. And they were, they, the needs were met. Turn back and we'll close here, Roman number 7, Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 7, and we'll close here. Verse 7 tonight, it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied. Now understand, number 7 follows men being chosen, the needs being met. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Number seven, when God's servants, when God's servants act wisely and under his direction, those two things need to go together. Wisely and under the direction of God, his work prospers. I mean, there's problems. I mean, there's complaining and murmuring and difficulties. Oh, man, it's probably the end of the local church in Jerusalem. Man, they... Going to go downhill now. Man, they're really going to take a big hit. Real problem coming here in the church. God's servants acted wisely. They followed the direction of God. And what happened? The work of God didn't stop. It didn't go downhill. It increased. It grew. And we see that the church grew. And Christian, when that happens, God is glorified. Not by the amount of people that were gathered together, but the fact that they obeyed. They obeyed God. They obeyed God. They honored God. If there's ever a breach 
in our church. The same kind of struggles, and by the way, we'll have them as we grow. We need to pray earnestly that God and the spirit of love would repair that breach, that there would be those that would be standing by to fill that need, that there would be fellowship, that it would prevail, that God's people and God's spirit would do a mighty and lasting work in us in an atmosphere of service and fellowship. The Bible says about Stephen, said that there were great, in verse 8, Stephen, full of, great, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Christian, can I tell you there's no problem too hard for God to fix. But sometimes we're too stubborn to let him fix it. Sometimes we don't like God's answer. Esther is going to have her wisdom teeth taken out. You're not excited about it. But it's what she needs. Perfect illustration. Oh, no, I don't want that. I'd rather be in pain. No, you wouldn't. But so oftentimes we look at God and say, God, I don't want that. I want this. But God has a purpose. No problem too hard. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you, Lord, for being in control.